Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I could hardly be happier. We are having eight baptisms today. It's been over a year since we've had baptisms here at All Saints, and we're having eight of them, which is great, great news. So very pleased about that. The story is told about an English priest who did uh, baptisms, but he didn't do pre-baptismal counseling like we've done here, but simply put up a note that said, baptism set third Saturday of the month, four o'clock, and people would show up. On this one occasion, some people showed up, and he turned to the one family, he didn't know who they were, and he took the child, and he said, name this child, and the father said, Spinana. And the priest thought to himself, Spinana, that's a stupid name. Who would call their kid Spinana? But as their kid, they can do anything they want. So he took the child and he said, Spinana, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he turned to hand the child back and the mother burst into tears. And the father was beat red with anger. And the poor priest said, but, 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 what, 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 what's wrong? And he said, why do you name her that fool name? He said, I just did what you told me. He said, no, you didn't. I said perfectly clearly, it's pinned on her. And sure enough, on her baptismal gown, there was pinned a little note that said, Mary Elizabeth. Now, I've always wondered if in heaven she's going to be Spinana or Mary Elizabeth. One of the Puritans, and I read the Puritans a lot and like them very much, one of the Puritans said that 317 things happen in holy baptism. One is the giving of a name. We just kind of touched on that. But think about that. 317 names. And that's a marvelous thing. I mean, we are adopted as God's children. We are justified in faith. We are given the Holy Spirit. We become heirs of the promises of heaven. We become heirs of the promises of the forgiveness of sins, etc., etc., ad gloriam. It's a wonderful thing we have. 317. Now think about that number. If the church, the church has four Sundays that we say is especially appropriate for baptism. The first Sunday of Epiphany, baptism of Jesus, that's obvious. We have then uh, Easter Vigil, Easter, Jesus rose from the dead, and sacramentally, we are being raised from the dead. We have the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is given to the one being baptized. And fourthly, we have uh, the day, All Saints Day, or the Sunday after All Saints Day, and we're creating by sacrament a little saint, adding to the number of the saints. And so four days appropriate for baptism, but we, we can do others. Today is not one of those days, but we're happy to be doing it today. Now think about that. Four days, if you divide four into 317, I'm not smart enough to do that, so let's cheat a little bit. Let's add three. We get now 320. I can do that math. It comes out to be 80 times. You could preach on baptism on each of those four Sundays and in 80 years, you would finally cover the fullness of what baptism is about. And I wish we could pay attention. 
I would even go this far and say that if all you know about the Christian faith is what is given in holy baptism, you know enough to be a vibrant Christian and to have a full, robust spiritual life in Christ. Holy baptism is wonderful. It can hardly be spoken of highly enough. Now, I want to look at just one piece of that baptismal covenant, and this is one of those 317 things. I want to look at the fourth petition. I think this is in your bulletin on page 4, so please, no, page 8. Please turn to that with me. This used to be a question, and here it's been made part of the litany of petitions. It's the fourth petition, and it goes like this that they may persevere in resisting evil, and whenever they fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. When I do baptismal counseling, I ask the parents and godparents, what is the most important word in that prayer? And they'll say a variety of things. Repent, that's a good word, that's not it. Uh, return, I mean, there's a whole theology of return to God in, in the story of the ex. Uh, the, the, the exiles coming back. Uh, there is perseverance. There is sin. It's none of those words. Finally, I get some wiseacre, uh, usually a godfather, who says, will you, whenever you, and he goes through the whole prayer word by word, and we eventually hit it. It's the word whenever. Now look at the prayer again. Look at this petition again. Let me pray it and change that one word that they may persevere in resisting evil, and if they fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. You notice how it's different. It's not a question of if we sin, it's a question of when we sin. Now, as a priest, there's not a whole lot I can really promise the baptismal family, but I can promise this, that kid's going to sin. I mean, that's just a given of the Christian life. In fact, we're even told that in First, uh, first John, First Epistle of St. John, chapter 1, where he says, um, if, anyone's, if we say we have no sin, uh, we make ourselves out to be liars. If anyone says he has no sin, he makes himself out to be a liar. We have sins. I got sins, you got sins, all God's children got sins. Now that's maybe good news. It's good news in the sense that we're not surprised when sin comes. But a lot of people do get surprised. They think that somehow if they've been baptized or they've given their life to Jesus or they've had a revival or they've been filled with the Holy Spirit or whatever way you want to speak about having some kind of intense religious experience that from now on I'm not going to sin anymore. And the promise of Scripture is, you will sin more. Now, that's not a rhetorical question. That really happens to us. The question is not, then, will I sin or not? You will, get over it. But when I sin, what will I do then? A lot of people despair. A lot of people turn to, well, there's three options. There's the first option, which I call the apostasy option. It goes like this, what a screw-up I am. I thought I was going to be different, but I'm not going to be different, and so I quit. I'm out of here. 
That's what the word apostasy means. Stasis means to stand. Apo means out of. Apostasis means to stand outside of the church. I'm not going to be part of our common life anymore. The second option I call the second to the last pew option. I'll explain that in a second. But it says, I'm not worthy of a first and equal place in the church. But I'm going to hang on by my teeth. I'm going to be in the very back of the church. And I will worship and pray in obscurity and shame. And then there's the third option. The front and center, fully forgiven option. What is past is past because Jesus has paid for it, and so I'm serving him now with my all, joyfully. Those are the three options. And it takes humility to recognize and embrace that third option I'm recommending for us. When I was in college, I worked during the summers for our family's paint factory, and when I, I worked in the uh, uh, warehouse, and then I worked in the mills, and that was hard work. And then I worked in the air-conditioned lab, and that was a blessing. And for lunch, I would once a week go down to sort of an uptown Wichita. There's this old building that was built in 1888. And it had those high 20-foot ceilings, and it had the original tin ceiling with all the crafting. It had a marble uh, 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 desk around for the uh, soda fountains, original to the building, and really good food. And I'd take my theological books, and I'd put them on a book stand, and I'd eat my meal, and I'd get my yellow magic marker, and I'd take notes and work on my books. This one waitress took a fascination with me. This guy is reading theology, and he's dressed like this common workman. And so she came over and asked about me, and we became friends. Her name was Alice. And I learned about Alice. She was a fellow Christian, but she was a sad Christian. She was a Christian of the second option, uh, what I call the second to the last pew option. Don't feel nervous. I'm not picking on anybody here. But this is what happened to Alice. She was sexually promiscuous in high school. She got pregnant and married her boyfriend, though she wasn't sure he would be a very good husband. They had another child. Both of them were heavy drinkers. Both of them got drunk. Both of them got arrested, temporarily had kids taken away. And then the husband would beat up on her on occasion. And then finally, Alice says, enough is enough, and divorced him. Now, what was the response of her church to her divorce? Her church says, you can be a member here, you can be on the mailing list, you can worship here, but you cannot receive Holy Communion. You cannot come up and receive this sacrament because you have sinned. And yet she didn't leave the church, but she sat in. It always intrigued me. I said, why the second to the last pew? She says, well, the last pew is kind of like on the way out, but the second last pew kind of says, I want to come forward, but I know I'm not worthy to come forward beyond the second to the last pew. And that just broke my heart when she told me. She and I became friends. Sometimes she would sit with me and would tell me the story if I had a late lunch, and she would tell me her story. And I said, well, if it were up to me, Alice, I would leave that church and go to a church that believes the whole story. You got half the story. Yes, your divorce and your premarital sex and your drunkenness was a sin. But God forgives sins. And he restores you to fullness of life. And it takes, 
recognition that I am two things. I am a sinner, but I am also a saint. And there's a wonderful Latin phrase by Martin Luther which pulls those two together. He says, we are simul justus et peccator. Simul, at the same time, simultaneously, justus, justified, et peccator, and a sinner. At the same time, a sinner and justified. It's not that we're justified and then something happens and we become a sinner and then we're a sinner, but then we get our act together and we get justified. We are at the same time both of those things. I'm both of those things right now, and I hope you are too. I had a woman in my third church who was a character. She's about this tall and she had this flaming red hair, and she was a character. She taught Sunday school, been on the vestry, and done a lot of things. But she was in my Sunday school class, and we met in this big hall, and then at a certain point I announced it was time for Sunday school. Those of you that want to eat the co- drink the coffee, go on into the kitchen, enjoy your coffee. Those of you that want your Sunday school, we're going to be here. And we had uh, three tables set up, and all of us joined together. And I'd knock on the table, and I'd stand up and say, all right, the sinners are gathering, and they'd get their coffee and go their various ways. Well, one time, this woman, her name was Daw. Isn't that a name for a person, Daw? She leaned over to me and she said, Father Brad, I don't like it when you call me a sinner. Okay, some of you have figured out my sense of humor. Yeah, okay, it gets me in trouble sometimes. But I simply pulled my glasses down and looked over at her over the frames and said, Is there any question? And, oh, that was uncomfortable, and I thought, okay, maybe I've gone over the top here. So I thought, next week I'll make it up to her somehow. So I came in, I was getting adjusted, and I sat down, had my coffee and notes, in a, and she leaned over to me. She said, Father Brad, I was thinking about what you said last week, and you're right. I'm a sinner. I said, I am so proud of you. Good for you. First lesson learned. Now we're ready to learn the second lesson. And I stood up and knocked on the table and said to everyone in the room, the saints are gathering. Because we're both. We are both saints and sinners. And you are never going to have a spiritual experience or a devotional moment of self-commitment where you say, I have arrived in such a way that I will never sin Again, John Wesley said that, and then later he wrote in his journal, I don't think that was true. Well, I would say to Mr. Wesley, I know that that wasn't true. And this is what makes it true. The essence of Christianity, this is according to P.T. Forsyth, is not the sacrifice we make, but the sacrifice we receive. That's the essence of being a Christian. You have received the forgiveness of God in Christ. That's the essence of the faith. St. Paul of the Cross, a a Roman Catholic mystic, has written so usefully to this point, should we fall into a sin, let us humble ourselves sorrowfully in his presence, and then, with an act of unbounded confidence, throw ourselves into the ocean of his goodness, where every failing will be canceled and every anxiety turned into love. When we fall into sin, 
We should humble ourselves, but then immediately throw ourselves, don't you love that phrase, into the ocean of his love, because God loves us. And there's no reason, Alice, you should beat yourself up for the rest of your life because of something you did 20 years ago. It's time to walk free of that. I know this from personal experience. When I was at the University of Kansas, I had recently been converted. I was teaching a Bible study in the Sigma Chi house. The day of miracles is not past. And I was a lay reader for the local Episcopal church in Lawrence, Kansas, in my home parish in Wichita, Kansas. I'd also approach my bishop and my parish priest with the sense of my call into the ministry and had been received as an aspirant, which is to say one on his way to being ordained in the church as a priest. So this was a pretty serious time for me. It was Christmas. It was just, I think, two weeks before Christmas. Their finals at the University of Kansas, there's probably 30 to 40 people in the uh, uh, dining room at the Sigma Chi house at 2.30 in the morning, and I was the steward of the fraternity of the kitchen. I was making coffee here at 2.30, and I said, does anybody want any snacks from Joe's? And every hand went up, so I took order of sandwiches and donuts and the rest, wrote it all down, and then I walked to Joe's. It was snowing, you could not drive to Joe's. You couldn't get out of the parking lot, but it was less than half a mile, so I walked to Joe's. Anyone who's ever been to the University of Kansas knows Joe's. It's a 24-hour donut shop. Later, they added sandwiches. So I walked there, and it was so fun walking there. It was so beautiful. The snow is falling. It's never quieter than when it snows. And these gorgeous Victorian houses left and right, and, and a lot of people up studying in those houses, and the, the light spilling across the lawn and onto the street. And I just sang hymns aloud all the way walking there. You know, just quiet hymn. Of the Father's love begotten, I remember singing that one. I got to Joe's and I walked in, and gosh, there must have been about 20 people in there. It wasn't a big store, but it was crowded. Uh, uh, pastries are over here and sandwiches over here. I walked over um, and I had this big flak jacket and I had a beard in those days and kind of long hair and I started collecting the sandwiches and I picked up the bologna sandwich and saw it used to be a dollar ten but now it's a dollar twenty-five. We had serious inflation under the president of that time and I thought well he said don't raise prices and here's raised it more than ten percent and that's wrong. And I'm against wrong because I'm a Christian, so I'm going to fix this wrong. And I kind of looked around, nobody's paying attention, and I just lifted the flap on my flak jacket, and I just slid one of those bologna sandwiches in, and that was going to even the tab, and that's the just thing to do. And then I went and I ordered the, you know, pastries and got my sandwiches. Joe came out to help at three in the morning, three in the morning. And he, you know, I put all my sandwiches up and I ordered the things. He didn't have a cash register. He wrote everything on a, 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 a bag, and then he would bag it into the bag he wrote things on. And he came to the bologna sandwiches, and he said, okay, bologna sandwiches, let's see, $1.25 times five, that's $6.25. No, 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 no. I said, there's only four. He said, no, there's five. And I said, no, there's, there, there's four. And I pushed them out in perfect geographical form, just geometrical form, just like on the die, one, two, three, four. And I looked at him, and he looked back at me, and he said, 
I think there's five. And I look back as though somehow looking is going to change the mathematics of what's in my pocket. And I said, I guess you're right. And then he added it up and charged me, and I walked back. I promise you, walking home was very different than walking to their, that place. I mean, I was just, I was so ashamed. And then at one point I started crying, and I thought, how could I do this? Here's a man, a working man who lives over his store, no front yard, no backyard, no side yard, and I'm stealing from him? And I got to one point, I said, God, there's only one thing I can do. I'm going to stop the Bible study. I'll announce it next month when we return. No more Bible study from Brad. And I need to go to the priest here and say, I can't read lessons and tell the priest in Wichita I can't read. I mean, you can't have a lector who steals. I'll have to tell my priest I'm withdrawing my name as an aspirin. And I wanted that more than anything in this life. And I thought, that's a return to God. That's a sacrifice he'll like. And I've only had about five flat-out miracles in my life. This was one of them. I heard a voice, and it was God's voice, and he said the most unexpected thing to me. He said, so who wins? I go, what do you mean, who wins? He goes, who wins? Look, I'm giving this stuff up, God. I love teaching a Bible story. I love being a lector. I love the thought of being a priest. Who wins? Because if you don't teach a Bible study in the Simakai house, who's going to pick that one up and start teaching it? And those people at church love it when a young person gets up and reads the scripture. It makes the older people feel really good. And I called you to be a priest, and I'm not giving you permission to withdraw from that. So who wins? And I remember I was standing on Vermont Street and uh, 10th Street, and I had my two big bags, and I picked them up in the air, and I just dropped them. And I said, what do you want from me? And God said, I want you to quit stealing. And I want you to teach that Bible study in the Simakai house. And next time you teach a Bible study with a little bit of humility that you are the kind of person who can steal from someone. And I want you to read the scripture and knowing that the truth and the beauty of it is not from you, it's just through you, that you're the kind of person who can do this. And when you become a priest, you will know that you are symbol Eustace at Peccator. And I picked up those bags, and I went back to the Simakai house a better person, in the knowledge that whenever you fall into sin, you don't play deals with God, you simply... What did St. Paul of the cross say? Humble ourselves sorrowfully in his presence and with an act of unbounded confidence throw ourselves into the ocean of his goodness. The call to baptism is the call to live in that kind of freedom and joy. Not beating ourselves up because of our sins but growing and becoming better people in the recognition of our sins. I close with a song I heard sung on the radio this week. You know it. Let us pray. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior.
I come to thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.